This podcast is intended for UK and Ireland healthcare professionals only. It is my pleasure to welcome you to Series 3 and Episode 4 of the Interstitial Lung Disease Academy Spotlight Podcasts, brought to you by Boehringer Ingelheim. Featuring prominent members of the UK and Ireland ILD community, this podcast hopes to shine a spotlight on the great work that is being done around the country and break down some of the challenges we face to deliver excellent care to our patients. My name is Dr. Anne-Marie Russell, a clinical academic at the University of Exeter and Royal Devon University Hospitals NHS Foundation Trust, with a special interest in patient-reported measures and outcomes in interstitial lung disease and patient-centred approaches. The title of this episode is The Need for Research to be Published and Showcase, and some of the challenges and barriers we face to publication in interstitial lung disease. Joining me on today's episode is Dr. Elizabeth Renzoni, a consultant respiratory physician at Royal Brompton Hospital and honorary senior lecturer at Imperial College London. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you, Anne-Marie. It's great to be here. So I wonder, before we start unpicking some of the challenges in publication in our field, I wonder if you could start by just telling us a little bit about you as a clinical researcher and um, as a, a leading expert in your field. Thank you. Um, I would say that um, my research has been a mixture of a bit of translational research, uh, looking at genetic associations and prognostic biomarkers, and then possibly more recently, more on the clinical uh, research, looking at the impact of uh, certain interventions on patients, looking more at clinical biomarkers, imaging biomarkers, lung function biomarkers that can help us basically predict how patients are going to behave because, of course, we know it's quite difficult to pick out which patients are going to progress early enough to be able to treat. And then I have a few other strands of research, but I would say these are the two main ones. Yeah, thank you, Elizabeth. And so I guess that leads nicely into um, the first question that I wanted to ask you, was thinking about the different types of clinical research studies that there are. Um, and from your experience, what, what types of clinical research would you say are conducted in interstitial lung disease? So basically, there's lots of different types of, uh, of clinical research, of course. And one can broadly distinguish between sort of primary research that you're looking at gaining new knowledge, and that could be done either with observational studies or investigative, so interventional studies, uh, where, and the classic example of that is a randomized controlled trial. And then you can have reviews, and they can just be um, literature reviews. You decide to write something about the state of uh, palliation of breathlessness in ILD and look at the literature and pull, pull it all together. Uh, or they can be systematic reviews, so much more structured, usually with a PICO uh, format, uh, where you probably need a librarian to help you out with the search. And it's much more uh, strict in which studies you can include and you cannot. And from a systematic review, you can also do a meta-analysis, which aims to pull together different studies and get an estimate of the risk 
um, or of the effect of a particular intervention. Um, and I guess uh, another thing to say, if we're thinking about the observational, the non-interventional studies, you can sort of broadly distinguish them into retrospective and prospective. Retrospective studies are much more common than the prospective. So if you have a look through PubMed in IOD, you'll find that the majority are probably retrospective studies. So that means the data were collected in the past, usually for clinical reasons, and then you have a question that you want to answer and you go to that data and try to get an answer. And that's a lot less time consuming than a prospective study where you set out the protocol and then it's an active process where patients come back, have certain tests at set intervals. And the benefits of prospective are that it reduces different types of bias. Um, and so retrospective studies are still being published, of course, and they can still provide a lot of information. But just to know that in the high impact factor journals, uh, there is a tendency for reviewers to ask for at least two separate cohorts. So, you know, you have found a risk factor for development of hypertension in ILD. Uh, let's say it's a bioserum biomarker or it's an imaging risk factor, they will expect you to show the same finding in a separate cohort. Not all studies have to be two cohorts, but let's say the higher you're going up the ranking of the respiratory journals, the more likely it is that in order to publish, you'll need the two. I don't know if you found that. Yeah, I, th I think that's a really important point and, and for people to consider ahead of putting um, pen to paper or finger to keyboard, because of course you want to think about which journal you're going to write for um, be before you start that process, uh, particularly in terms of style of writing and um, I, I guess also in terms of word count allowance and, and tables, etc., which does vary a bit from journal to journal. So I'm wondering, Elizabeth, because I know that you support a lot of clinical fellows and uh, clinically and through research as well. Do you think involvement in a retrospective study is a good place to start for people who are wanting to be involved in research? Yeah, absolutely. I think at the very beginning, I think a review is not bad uh, because, you know, writing a review, it can be a literature review. You, you may have either you or your supervisor or combined, you may have discussed a, a possible subject um, that you're interested in. Uh, and I guess the first thing is, which is useful to do is do a literature review, because then that already puts you um, in charge of what is known so far. And it's going to be easier than to design a study that uh, tells you something new, because ideally in uh, clinical research studies, you are looking for something new. It doesn't have to be, you know, <laughs> completely novel and groundbreaking, but it has to be a sort of incremental change. And uh, starting with a literature review, or if you want to, a systematic review is a good place to start, I would say. And then, yeah, uh, a retrospective study is going to be easier than a prospective study just to get um, hands into how you structure a study, what questions, you know, usually a, a paper is structured around one question um, and what type of statistical analysis do you need to use um, and, and that sort of thing. So I think that, that sort of sequence review and then a retrospective study is a good way to start. 
Yeah, and I guess it's also good to be aware of Prospero, isn't it? Looking to see what reviews have already been registered or published through Prospero before you actually start your own review, just to make sure that you're doing original work and not repeating something that your question is distinct. Very good point, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And so you you talked a a little bit about the difference in in journals. Obviously, a two-cohort study is maybe going to find a place in a higher impact factor journal What do you think, from your experience, I know you're widely published uh, across a range of journals at Elizabeth, do you think they're looking for anything else in interstitial lung disease in terms of studies? I guess when when you're thinking about which journal to publish, you're going to have to decide, what is my message? Um, you know, is it a qualitative type research? Is it imaging study? Is it a serum biomarker study? What What is your research and who is your audience, um, your preferred audience? And, you know, one goes on a, a lot about impact factor. And basically, the impact factor is a measure of the average times that a paper in that journal is cited. So, um, you know, the, the higher the citation uh, on average, the higher the impact factor. But on the other hand, um, certain studies may not be suited for high impact factor journals. Um, and some, you know, that have maybe more involved with 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 nursing, for example, or physiotherapy, just by their nature, tend to have lower the journals that deal with, uh, let's say, nursing have a lower impact factor because they ha- don't have such a wide citation. You know, there's comparatively less research being done than in uh, sort of the medical clinical uh, field, and so it really depends. I mean, I wouldn't get fixated on the impact factor, and it really depends on who your audience is. Who do you want to reach? And then having a look, also discussing with your supervisor, and then just having a look through PubMed, where have similar studies been published? And just have a look through what's the, you know, what's the acceptance rate? Some journals just have 5% acceptance rate. Others can have up to 30, 40% acceptance rate. So there will be, it's a good idea to look through uh, PubMed, for example, and just see uh, what is out there in the subject that you want to discuss and then discuss with uh, other more experienced uh, researchers. So thank you, Elizabeth. And I'm wondering if you've had situations where you may have contacted a member of the editorial team at a, at a journal prior to publication just to solicit interest in a, in a paper that you've been working on, just to maybe test if it's within their scope. I haven't done that, uh, but have you? Have you done that? (laughs) Yes, I think because... (laughs) How did that go? So mixed results. I think I've done it twice and one was a yes and one was a no. And and again, it's one of those challenges of coming from a non-medical background and having research that is mixed methods. So um, not centrally qualitative, not not centrally quantitative. And sometimes it's it's difficult to know exactly where that that fits. So so on occasions, I I have sounded out the editorial team just to see if it's, it's likely to be a um, accepted yeah. to be sent out for peer review. Yeah, 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 no, for sure. Of course, they, you know, they won't be able to say, yes, we're going to accept it, but at least they can tell you whether that sort of thing interests them. Because a lot yes. of it is down to that, isn't it? The sort of, for example, the highest impact factor in respiratory 
uh, journal is the Lancet Respiratory. And they, in terms of, they've published a lot of other types of articles, commentaries, editorials, reviews, etc. But in terms of their original research, they mainly publish uh, clinical trials randomized controlled clinical trials. So if you have a randomized controlled clinical trial that you've completed, um, then that could be the place for you. If it's a small retrospective study, it wouldn't be the right place for it. So again, it depends on very much on what the journal tends to publish and who are its readers. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's... But I agree. It could be helpful to contact the editorial team. Yeah, uh, although I, I don't want the editorial team to be inundated now by queries. <laughs> but um, I, I, <laughs> I've never I, done it, so just to say, I've never done it. I, I think it is also an important uh, point that you raised about um, taking on reviews, you know, reviewing papers, being a peer reviewer is a really important role. It helps you, I think, develop your writing style and an understanding of a particular journal as well. Um, so particularly for those who are early on in their research career. Absolutely. And it's a sort of win-win situation because the journals really struggle. There's tons of journals out there. And of course, there's also the predatory journals who send you emails saying, have a good day, greetings from here, greetings from there. And you know, they're just out to get money and you need to know that and ignore them. No proper journal is going to solicit uh, an article from you unless you've discussed it before uh, or unless, you know, you've done a fantastic study. (laughs) Otherwise, those are predatory journals which, you know, need to be avoided. But apart from that, being a reviewer, so there's so many journals out there now that for the journals to find good reviewers is very difficult. Uh, and that's, you know, happens in every editorial meeting. Uh, I'm in uh, associate editor for respirology. And then at every meeting, there is this, uh, can we find more reviewers? And one of the action points that has been taken forward is that of uh, having a list of early career members that can be contacted for, uh, to review. And the positive on the, early, you know, the, the person who's interested in research is that you get to think like a reviewer. And that's really what you need in order to write a good manuscript. Um, you have to think like a reviewer and you, you yourself should know pretty much what are the weak points in your study. And if you can sort of counteract them or at least show in the discussion that you've thought of it. And yes, this is a limitation of the study, but uh, this other thing can sort of minimize the impact, etc. And that you learn how to do that. You learn by being a reviewer. And it takes time, especially, you know, when I started, I think as a reviewer, uh, it would take me the whole day <laughs> and, you know, or even two days, like on the weekend, because I didn't know the subject that much. I had to read a lot of things. So to begin with, it takes some time, but I think it's a very useful process. Yeah, I, I agree absolutely. And and um, there are some nice papers published that tell you um, how to write a review, which can be helpful. I think I've still got one I refer back to. And I, I think also having some mentorship. Uh, actually, Elizabeth, I think you helped me with the first review that I did, which is uh, oh, right. a, a number okay. of years ago now. <laughs> I, I think when you start out, it's always good to to have somebody um, who's experienced to, to discuss your feedback as well and always be as positive and constructive uh, as, 
as you can. Agreed. Agreed. Having someone to bounce your ideas of the review off is going to be useful. Yeah, for sure. Um, you, you mentioned a, a couple of things I'd like to come back to, Elizabeth. One was um, you mentioned the cost of publication. And I wondered if you could expand on that a little bit more, maybe talk to open access. Yeah, sure. More and more journals are moving towards open access. So that means that the article is freely available for all to read. And it's done also with the spirit of, um, you know, developing countries that cannot afford to buy a subscription to journals. So that scientific and medical scientific work can be available to everyone. On the other hand, the cost of a publication is, is substantial in the sense that the cost of um, the open access articles usually is around 2000 It can be even 3000 sometimes 1000 So you need to have budgeted for it in your grant. Now, certain grant bodies, grant and research grant bodies actually require you to publish open access and then you can budget for that. And usually you can. Um, but let's say you don't have a grant and you are writing a review, for example, for which you don't have any funding, you're doing it in your own time, um, then it can be problematic to publish in an open access uh, where you're asked to pay a thousand or two thousand pounds. Um, but there are many journals that are still either hybrid so you can choose to have open access, but if you don't want to pay, you can also um, publish without having open access with no extra cost. Um, and but it's always where and some that are still, you know, not open access. So you just need a subscription to read the article. So it's always worth, you know, first thing I remember once I we we published a case series. We wrote a case series uh, with a review of the literature uh, for. BMJ pulmonary research, I think it was. And and only when we had finished, I checked and I saw, no, you have to pay £2,000. I had to find £2,000 for that um, or change the whole format. Because the other thing is, decide early on what journal you're going to be publishing in, because each journal has their own formatting. They'll have the, like you said um, earlier, they'll have the the number of words, uh, how it's divided, and, and and that. So yes, there is a mixture, but always good to know the journal that you're thinking about. Can you publish without paying? Do you need to pay? How much do you need to pay? Where are you going to find the money, etc.? How do you deal with uh, open access? Yeah, so I guess it's um, wherever possible. I try and um, and and have patients involved as co-authors, and I think where that occurs, I would endeavour to always publish open access if I can, because then it gives access to the patient population uh, to read, and the kind of work True. that I do is probably relevant to patients as much as it is to clinicians and academics. And then, of course, I'm employed within a university, and uh, many universities throughout the UK have. A agreements with publishing houses. So sometimes publication true, costs true. are discounted um, or the, the host university. Will or even free. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, so that makes a big difference. And I guess it's probably worth then thinking, isn't it, that for, for people who are new to research, if they're part of a list of co-authorships, it's thinking about who that corresponding author is and, and if there's someone who can help out with the funding aspects, um, it, it removes some true. of that other pressure. 
Yeah, 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 absolutely. And so thinking about corresponding author, I don't know, Elizabeth, I've always been taught within the respiratory world, but I, colleagues in other specialties don't always work this way, that senior authorship is usually first or last position and sometimes indicated that there are more senior authors by an asterisk and, and an acknowledgement and that often it's usually the first three authors who've been involved in doing most of the work. Is that the way that you tend to think when you're looking at authorship yeah. lines? Yes, yes. And usually the senior author is the last one. Uh, but like you say, you can have two or three senior authors and then you have a little asterisk that said they contributed equally. And usually the first authors are the more junior staff, the more junior researchers. That can change, you know, if you've got two senior authors that have done equivalent amounts of work, one might choose to go first, especially in clinical trials. Um, and one other might choose to go last. But yeah, the, the middle authors, the one in the midst of everything, are usually the ones that have contributed, but to a much lesser degree than the first. The first one and the last one are the, the key ones. Absolutely. And then the other thing, you mentioned a couple of journals, Elizabeth. You, you mentioned Lancet Respiratory with its high impact factor and Respirology. I think that, that you're part of the editorial team. Which other journals should people be thinking about if they're wanting to publish research in interstitial lung disease? Yeah, sure. No, there's, there's many, many. So if you go down the impact factor list, Lancet Respiratory is the highest. Um, then you've got, I think, the... I mean, you might have a few more, but you've got the Blue Journal, the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. Uh, then you've got the ERJ, the European Respiratory Journal, which also accepts research letters. So, you know, if you don't have enough to go for a full-blown study, you might decide to go for a research letter, which is 1,000 words, but you're only allowed one figure or one table. So it's limited. It's a smaller study of broad interest. Then you have, uh, I may not be saying them in the right order, but uh, I think you have thorax. And then you have a whole load of others, including respirology, respiratory research. Further down, you've got pulmonology, pulmonary medicine. Um, and then, of course, you have the rheumatological journals, the nursing journals, you know, the other categories that you can go to. Uh, one thing that I didn't mention is, of course, case reports. So another good way to start could be to write either a case report or a case series with a review of the literature. Uh, but you have to check whether that particular journal accepts case reports. For example, I think the EIJ and the Lancet Respiratory don't, but the Blue Journal, uh, CHEST, uh, thorax and some are more focused just on imaging and only 500 words. Others like in chest, they've got the chest pearls, which is more of a case really discussed in detail between the junior doctor, the senior doctor, the pathologist, the radiologist. So have a look at those as well, because that can also be fun um, as a way to, you know, dip your toes it's yes, not research yeah. as such, but it's still clinically useful if you have a, a case series that is saying something new uh, about a particular disease. And a really good way to develop your writing style as well, I think, uh, through, through that approach. True, true. Yeah. So that leads me on nicely to think about, um, because often cases are presented at, at national and, and international respiratory conferences alongside other research 
I know that you have a lot of experience of presenting and uh, chairing at the international conferences, but is that a good way to, um, I guess, dip your toe in the water and, and become familiar with, with research that's happening? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, you can go, you have the, the British Thoracic Society and they've got a, a summer conference, which is more focused on clinical sort of early trainees um, and then you have the winter meeting that is usually either November or December in, in London. Um, the, the other one, the summer meeting is usually outside of London. Um, so you can send an abstract for that. And it may be accepted as a poster that is just there to be discussed and looked at or a poster discussion where you're asked to present the findings for two minutes uh, in front of an audience and the, the chairs. Uh, or it might be accepted as a talk, as a, you know, a 10-minute talk. And the same goes for the European Respiratory uh, Society Conference. And then you've got the American Thoracic Society Conference. You have to travel to the States to go there. Um, but So conferences are good not only to showcase what you've done, but also to see and interact and um, you know, get to know uh, other researchers and each of these societies has a scheme, usually has a scheme for young researchers to support them and they've got different arms. You know, it can be more the clinical, the translational, genetics, they've got different um, subgroups that one. So that's also worth looking into if you're if you're planning on going to a conference. Because it's a yeah. good way to interact both with other colleagues, you know, at the same level or with uh, more senior colleagues. And I guess it gives you a real insight into the new research that's going to be seen in print subsequently if novel findings are presented. Completely, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So thinking about that whole journey of um, I've been successful in awarding uh, in being awarded a research grant, which is a whole other topic, I guess. Yes. Um, and then uh, obviously the conduct and delivery of the study, and, and then you're already thinking about publication. So I wonder if we might draw a, a good example from the the Ambox uh, study and forget the pain of the grant submission, but beyond that, after you were successfully awarded a, an RFPB grant to conduct the AMBOX study, Elizabeth. I wondered what you were thinking and planning for in terms of the output and whether you uh, could tell us a little bit about an impact statement that is sometimes needed in these large grants. So usually in these larger sort of clinical grants, and the RFPB is not super large, but it is you know, large enough, they provide funding to, uh, to do a study, a trial or other type of study. Um, you need to have show that it will have an impact uh, not only on the science and on, you know, finding something new that wasn't known before. Uh, so that's the first requirement. And then always in the context of NIHR grants, of which RFPB is one, um, you will always need to show, first of all, that you've developed the idea together with patients, and that's the PPI section, so patient and public involvement, and also what sort of impact it's going to have on patients, their families, uh, the wider community. So you're showing both the scientific, you need to show what sort of impact it will have on the medical scientific community and what benefits 
will be derived from for the patients uh, and their families. And then just to say, I mean, Ambox, just as an example of how long it takes <laughs> to, and you know, how much longer it takes compared to what you think. And if I think of Ambox, and the first time I submitted it was in 2011, and it didn't get funded. So I submitted it again, end of 2012. Then, you know, reviews, uh, changes, etc. That in the end, it started in 2014 was completed in mid-2016. Then the whole analysis, checking the data, et cetera, et cetera, it was finally published in the Lancet Respiratory Medicine as a randomized control trial in 2018. So it took <laughs> from beginning to st- trying to find the funding, being unsuccessful, then finding it the second time, because actually it was useful to get the reviewers' comments from the first one. Um, it took seven years to uh, come, you know, to bring it to the to the conclusion, it was worth it. It was a, a, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the whole process, but it's you know takes a lot of work. And uh, the fellows that worked on it were incredible, and they worked really hard too. Uh, but then in the end, the the findings of the studies uh, did lead to a change in the ATS guidelines for oxygen. So there was a, a weak. Um, conditional recommendation for ambulatory oxygen, which wasn't there before. So it's a long process, but it does give you a lot of satisfaction once it's completed, but it can be quite painful (laughs) during the way, but also interesting, of course. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that final paper is very well cited and has informed sort of future work at at other centres. But I know, Elizabeth, I I think that was an interesting process in in view of the fact that it was quite a scientific study. But I I think the reviewers uh, were keen to uh, include some of the qualitative elements of the study as well. Is that correct? Absolutely. And we had thought that we would publish the qualitative part separately. The qualitative part, it was thanks to the research design service that the NHR offers um, to anyone that wants to put in a grant. It was them that um, first suggested uh, inserting a qualitative element that the NHR really likes that and looks for it. And I'm really glad we did. But then we were going to publish it separately. And instead, the Lancet Respiratory said, no, we would like the whole thing because it, you know, brings it more alive. And it's true, you know, to have the the perspective of the patients and the citations from the patients brings the findings more uh, close to patients, basically. Yes, yeah. No, I, I know patients were, were very heavily involved in that study. And I think having patients involved in the manuscript really, really helpful too, isn't it? To to get mm-hmm. the, yes. the, the challenging feedback and, and the different perceptions. Have you um, had that uh, with most of your papers? I have, yes. And uh, some things that I have done as well is have a kind of reflective exercise with patients, which um, means I learn a lot about myself, some of which I'm comfortable with, some of which I've been less comfortable with. But hopefully it's helped me to grow as a, as a better patient-centred researcher over time. Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. I think I just wanted to mention, Elizabeth, because we spoke about um, international conferences and, and of course, there's a cost involved in that. But um, I maybe just wanted to take the opportunity to flag that a, a lot of the respiratory charities, such as the British Lung True. Foundation, Action for Pulmonary Fibrosis, the Irish Lung Fibrosis Association, offer bursaries um, for junior researchers. Yes, you're right. 
Um, so, so I guess absolutely that's a competitive, competitive application. And I think the, 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 yeah, and the ERS does too. I think you can apply for bursaries, and of course, if you're in a grant, um, you know, as part of a grant, you will also have that as a possibility. Yes. Yeah. But no, you're right. You should look around to get uh, bursaries for traveling. Yes. Yeah. And, and registering guess, because these conferences are expensive. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I guess membership of these organizations helps, doesn't it, with reduced conference fees, but also um, keeping keeping connected. For So I think, for, for example, you're a, a prominent um, member. I'm not sure if you're still chairing one of the subgroups in the interstitial lung disease. No, no, I'm not. But I was. Yeah. 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 Yes, for, yes. for the CCD, the diffuse lung disease group. Uh, but right now, we're, I'm one of the members working on the ERS ULAR guidelines on CCD IOD. So I'm still very much involved with the ERS, but um, I'm not sharing at the moment. No, <laughs> it's only no. for three years. And I guess those guideline networks are a lot of hard work, but in, in terms of thinking about literature reviews and meta-analysis, if you have the opportunity to be involved as a junior member in a guidelines group, that's also a good way, I think, to develop some absolutely i mean and we've got um a couple of junior uh, members and probably more i'm talking about the subgroup that i'm in um and of course they do most of the work so if you go into it you have to be ready to to work a lot but it's very useful because um it's useful for the more senior people of course um but it's also useful very much so for the more junior yes. uh, clinicians yeah. So Elizabeth, you're a you're a, a seasoned researcher. You're an, an expert in your field, and and you know your colleagues very well. For people who are coming uh, new to interstitial lung disease and wanting to understand who does what and where and when and if they can help, where is a good place for them to look to to get a sense of of the research work that perhaps some of the leaders um, and evolving leaders are, are participating in. First of all, again, at conferences. So if you're going to a conference, you will see who the leader, you will see several, the people who are speaking or chairing, who are speaking in plenary sessions or are chairing sessions usually are, you know, senior in their field um, on PubMed. So uh, doing searches, again, you will begin to see, you know, there are some people that come out as senior authors uh, consistently. Um, do you have any other suggestions? Yes. Yeah. I think the other place that I, I know um, is ResearchGate. Not not everyone is on yeah, ResearchGate. I, I think you're you're on there and I guess it's yeah, not only yeah, publications. Yeah, that's another good way. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and sometimes True. people advertise the projects that they're working on. So it gives you a sense of activity. Um, True. Um, and there's probably a lot more Elizabeth that we don't know about because uh, <laughs> they're a, I'm a sure. different generation. <laughs> exactly. I'm sure. I'm sure. Elizabeth, it's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for talking uh, to us uh, today. And I would like to thank the listeners for listening to this podcast. Yes. Also for me. Lovely to have this session with you, Anne-Marie. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you. And then I'd just like to flag up that next week we will be recording episode five in this five-part series and we will be discussing the rheumatologist's perspective in interstitial lung disease with a keen focus on optimising and integrating rheumatological services to coordinate patient care. So we look forward to you joining us then. Thank you. <music>